0: History Teachers Talking Podcast short lectures have now grown up and moved to their own channel. Don't forget to subscribe to our new podcast, History Shorts, wherever you're listening to this episode. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to History Teachers Talking, and here is your newest episode. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to
1: History Teachers Talking Podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. <laughs>
0: All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast.
1: Today, we're going to be looking at the Japanese Emperor Hirohito, um, his role in World War II. And what was his role? There's a lot of debate with that, like what he knew or what he ordered, what he didn't order. Really, how he did help end the war. You can't argue that, like how he, he said, All right, this is enough, it's enough, it's time to get to war. And really the power he had of his people, because he was seen as a living god at
0: the time. He went on the radio twice in the span of a year. In nineteen forty five, which we're gonna talk about today, is when he first time the people of Japan hear his voice, when Hirohito goes on and says, We will surrender. We are surrendering and then a year later, Hirohito goes back on the radio for another speech. And in that one, he says, I am actually not a god. And then from that point forward, he became kind of like a constitutional monarch. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: He lived all the way into like 1989. Like, so he was around like yeah. post-war. He was a major player in post-war Japan, too, which we can talk about a little bit just to like put a bow on it, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Hirohito was the emperor of Japan from 1926 until his death in 1989. So he was one of the longest Japanese monarchs. If not, I think the longest. Hirohito was the eldest son of Crown Prince Yoshihito, born April 29th, 1901 in Tokyo. Because of the custom at the time, the imperial family members actually were not raised by their parents. So Hirohito is taken away and he spends the first years of his life being raised particularly this was picked out specifically for him but a retired vice admiral to make him tough and train him growing up in the idea of war like you're gonna lead the nation one day yeah the guy he raised
1: him as his grandson that was basically yep. what he said like, no one i guess i don't know people knew that was here or not like they just saw oh, this is my grandson but didn't say no this is the the future emperor. For the first three years of his life, his brother was also taken away to be given to somebody else. He came back when he was three. He was brought back to the uh, Japanese court, basically.
0: Well, yeah, because the vice-admiral, the retired vice-admiral ends up passing away. So Hirohito is then brought back. They create special schools for him on the ground to the palace that are for all kids of nobility. So from the age of seven to 19, Hirohito receives very rigorous instruction in military and religious matters. He is taught two things. One, The idea of militarism in the sense of like strong Japan and the code of Bushido and samurai. We did that in our podcast a few months back. He's also being taught on his religious role. Like you are not a person. You are more or less a god. And Hirohito didn't really buy this. And this was something that was really... Upsetting his teachers and educators. They're like, No, you're you're like a god. And he was like, No, I'm really not.
1: They said unexpected. one, he was very sickly as a child, and two, yeah, he was very like soft-spoken person. It just wasn't in his nature. But he had a lot of patience and self-control, too, from everything that I read about
0: him. He's eleven years old yeah. when he's officially commissioned into the Imperial Japanese <laughs> Army as a second lieutenant.
1: Yeah. Eleven. Just, he's 11 years, uh, old. eleven years old. Yeah. And they explained him his responsibilities. And you got to say at this point too, the Japanese military is starting to become a really big deal. Yep. So that's why this is going to become an even bigger deal in like 10 years from this point.
0: His father is actually viewed as a very weak leader. A lot of historians that go out and they're saying his father had like mental issues and he ultimately had like lost his mind. So no one really was too sad when his father passed away. It was almost like they were looking forward to Hirohito. That's one reason why he
1: was being groomed the way he was. Yep.
0: In 1921, young Hirohito takes like a 34-man entourage and travels to Western Europe. After six months, he was like, you know, I kind of don't mind this. Like, I feel free for the first time. He visited Britain. He visited France. He visited the Netherlands. Vatican. And once he comes back, he assumes the duties of the emperor.
1: A lot of big things start happening during this time. One is the Four Powers Treaty, which signs in December of 1921, when Japan, the United States, Britain, and France agree to recognize kind of like a status quo in the Pacific, that these are going to be the four major powers in the Pacific, right? So Japan feels big because now they're being on par with Britain, France, and um, the United States, which is, a, which is a growing power, right? They get a lot of their power in the Pacific from the Spanish-American War in 1890. So it's like 20 years after that. This kind of is also laying the groundwork for what's going to happen 20 years later. Like this is signed December 13th right? December 7th, 1941, 20 years later, we all know what happens. It's laying that foundation to the rivalry that's going to happen particularly between Japan and the United States. There's a big earthquake that devastated Tokyo in 1923. So he's kind of like dealing with all of this stuff. Political disasters, there was an assassination attempt at one point. He ordered the death of the person that tried to do it. He's put through the ringer pretty quick.
0: Hirohito assumes the throne. There's technically universal male suffrage law that had just passed, which creates really the first political parties in pre-war years in Japan, so now you have almost like a democracy going in. There's a big crisis for this pro-democracy movement, and there's a lot of instability, primarily because, as you mentioned, there is an actual attempt against his life. Hirohito fires their prime minister in 1929 because he thinks that prime minister had something to do with it. The next prime minister is shot and mortally wounded, and then in 1932, another prime minister is assassinated by naval officers that were upset about him signing the treaty to limit Japanese warships. From that point forward, you see the military starting to take over, and eventually they outlaw political parties because they realized that that just caused too much
1: fighting yeah they're like no we're just we're just going to control everything
0: from this point forward all prime ministers are somehow tied to military while all this is happening and the military is taking over the situation in japan hirohito is still the emperor he's still the boss or god as you might say but a day-to-day administration is really passed on to these military leaders and this is how we eventually get to know you know tojo and you think of american history and studying pacific yeah. war but the emperor is still there it's he has just- to be there
1: because the people want him there like that's another thing to the, the military whatever they're taking over yeah, you know, all, all that stuff but they kind of realize they need the emperor and even it's people in the military that still are very tied to the idea of the emperor as a god on earth as you know the, the sun and stuff like that they need that there. It's kind. Of, it was always something that's kind of difficult. A lot of like Western people understand even at the time. You see the emperor occasionally, but it's more just having his title. And if he goes away, that could hurt the military's chance to control the people. Let's say you know. Yep,
0: and it kind of all comes to fruition in 1936. So you have 1,400 soldiers mutiny in Tokyo and they seize the army ministry and murder several high-ranking politicians that's when you see like the military is really starting to control what's going on and Hirohito by this time has a wife they have three daughters which is becoming an issue because again he's not there's no heir yet yeah eventually there's a a it seems always happen with
1: these monarchs right they just keep on having daughters and they you know like oh I need to have a kid you know yeah, and, and eventually
0: they do have they do have uh, a son. Eventually, they have seven children. So while this is happening, right? Meanwhile, Japan's conflict with China is growing. It's 1931. The Japanese army officers initiated the incident because that's when they detonated the railway explosion, right? And the blame yeah, it on was Chinese a, bandits. Yeah, there was,
1: yeah, was a false flag. Yeah, descendants on pretext to invade Manchuria. And they set up a puppet
0: state, which becomes known as Manchukuo. By 1937, there's a f- the full-blown war between Japan and China. At that point, the Japanese army massacres an estimated 200,000 civilians and prisoners of war in the city of Nanking. This is also known commonly as the Rape of Nanking, because rape is thought to have been extremely commonplace during that time in really any Japanese-controlled regions of Asia. So Hirohito did not condone this invasion. didn't stop it. But he didn't stop it. And historians now believe that he didn't stop because he was worried that the military would actually make him abdicate, like there was a possibility that the military has gotten so strong, especially with the the coup or attempted coup in 1936, where they killed all these politicians, that like they could actually potentially
1: could do, do something, something to him. Well, I saw in some of his memoirs he writes that like he only gave the go ahead for a defensive war against China. But he didn't want to actually wage war against China. That's what he writes. But he was also doing this because he felt like he needed to prepare for a war against the Soviet Union. That was one of the things he worried about. But he did give the go-ahead to invade uh, Nanking. He was very eager to fight this battle. Just believed it would, it would be a huge blow and it would cause the Chinese to surrender. So that's one reason why it became so brutal. Like in the, uh, Because the emperor said, okay, you can do this. So it kind of just gave those in the military too. Like, oh, if the emperor said it's okay. Let's go out. And that's one reason why it was so Brutal. One reason. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, he sanctioned the use of chemical warfare. He sanctioned the uprooting of all the peasants in Nanking. He later would say, like, obviously, I didn't want all these rapes to happen, but, like, I did say they could go into Nanking. And that kind of comes up you know, later on, and well, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, this idea of like, is he a war criminal? Was he rather a war criminal? Was he not? Uh, we do know that he did play a role in Japanese militarism at the time, but for what reason he played that role? Again, there's a speculation that perhaps he was doing it because of the fact that had he not done it, um, him and his family would also be in danger. Yeah. So, essential winds up happening is Japan in 1940, September 1940, signs a pact with Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy, which kind of already makes them, the, you know, as far as historians are concerned in history, kind of the bad guys. But they agree to assist one another should any of them be attacked by a country not already involved
1: in war. The emperor chooses Tojo as the next prime minister and, and war and minister. War, and minister and war minister because Tojo was so devoted to the imperial institution, right? He would listen to the emperor, basically. And then he starts discussing with Hirohito, particularly war against the United States. Apparently, Hirohito does give the authorization, the approval to Tojo. To plan an attack on Pearl Harbor.
0: Hirohito, he's the god, right? You don't really see Hirohito. So Tojo becomes the face of Imperial Japan, which is often when you start looking at various political cartoons from the time. Like you see Mussolini, you see Hitler, and you see Tojo. Tojo. You don't see Hirohito. They talk about
1: Hirohito. A lot of those Bugs bunny cartoons and stuff. But they also talk about Tojo. He's the one. He's the public figure.
0: Yep, he's the prime minister. He's the one that's – everyone kind of assumes is the leader of Japan. I mean, technically, he is, right? The prime minister, and also because of the, his ties to the army.
1: He, he's calling the shots.
0: Yeah, he's calling the shots here. He run right? really I mean, his he body, talk- Emperor, like,
1: I guess he could if the Emperor decided to say no, maybe yep. Tojo would have listened, but it, that never happens. Yeah, he didn't necessarily say yes, but he never said no either. Until like the
0: end, for Japan sends troops to occupy French Indochina, and then shortly thereafter, the United States responds with economic sanctions. The U.S. has had enough of what's happening in China. They have enough of now. French Indochina is being attacked. Economic sanctions include embargo on oil and steel. Within little over a year, Hirohito consented. He actually agreed to Tojo's demands, or not demands, but suggestions to have war against the United States. Well, because yeah,
1: I mean, we talk about this in the Pearl Harbor episode, yep. but it was it was more or less. The Japanese, you know, the military military in Japan saw this this as an ultimatum, right? That you're going to put sanctions on our oil, on our scrap metal, and us not getting that means we can't wage war. So that's an ultimatum. So therefore, we have to wage war against you to get these materials that we need to continue our war in China and stuff like that. And that's basically what happened. They're going to give the okay for this attack on uh, Pearl Harbor. And they also invade... Malaya and the Philippines too on that same time. So that's what it's it's a full, it's not just the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's a full scale attack on not just the United States, but also the United Kingdom and the Netherlands are also attacked at this time.
0: Yeah, within the next seven months, Japan occupies the Dutch East Indies, British Singapore, New Guinea, the Philippines, and a number of other um, Southeast Asia and Pacific islands. So the war goes on. Japan is the winner in pretty much everything. Until June 1942, we have battle of Midway. Soon after, there's the Battle of Guadalcanal. Japan's, I guess, luck changes, you might say. Their luck changes. The United
1: States, is their war machine is revving up, right? Japan can't keep up that war production, right? So as more soldiers, more American soldiers particularly, are coming in. And they just get slowly get beat out. As their soldiers die, they can't train them, right? They're the replacements as well. They can't build more aircraft carriers. That's what happened at Battle of Midway. So, yeah, they're just they're just slowly being bled dry.
0: So this is where you have Hirohito kind of re-enters the scene here. By early 1945, Hirohito begins to individually meet with senior government officials to kind of consider where to go with this war.
1: Because the Japanese people, they didn't really know what was going on. Like, they would hear things, I guess, but they didn't really know. They didn't hear about Midway, right? They don't hear about a lot of these battles. And then one thing, one battle that um, Hirohito was really hoping for was like the battle at Leyte. He wanted to send forces to Leyte. They take off, which wants to become just like a huge defeat for the Japanese. And after that, that's when he was like, what you're saying, he was like, this is not going to be good. We need to like figure out what are our options here.
0: We have to acknowledge the fact that pretty much everyone around him wanted to continue the war. Yes. They, he has a war council. There's the, the big six. And the big six are Prime Minister um, Suzuki, you have Minister of Foreign Affairs Togo, Minister of the Army Anami, Minister of the Navy Yonai, and the Chief of the Army General Staff Umezu, and the Chief of uh, Navy General Staff Toyota. Basically, all of Japanese policymaking centered around these people. Yeah. Like that's his council, right? Mm-hmm. And out of this council, at the beginning, at least still in early 1945, all of them are still very much like, Uh, we need to continue this war. But then slowly but surely, one by one, they start to kind of fall off and start to agree. Like Suzuki, Prime Minister Suzuki, when he's brought in to become Prime Minister, because Tojo's
1: eventually let go.
0: The situation for Japan is not going well. Tojo, by the big six, is kind of like,
1: you go over there. Kind of uses a scapegoat, even though it wasn't just him. So yeah, you need to move him away. And then they start to they actually start to make some um, overtures to the Soviet Union, right? This is yep. in like mid June 1945. Like, let's approach the Soviet Union and act as a mediator. And that did nothing. because Stalin was like, "No way." He, well, because Stalin like, wants
0: uh, he, 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 he wants that
1: land. Yeah, he's like, he's like, you're beaten basically. For, you're like you're not going to be able to repel my invasion. On July 26, 1945, the Allies issued the Postum, Postum right. Declaration, which is basically like, if you want to surrender, it's unconditional. Japan was willing to almost do that. They wanted one major condition, right? And that was a guarantee that the emperor's position in Japanese society would still exist. And the Allies were like, no, it's an unconditional surrender. We're not going to guarantee that. So then the emperor decided not to surrender. And that was in July of uh, 1945. And we know what was also happening in the United States in July of 1945. That was the finishing of the atomic bomb at the Manhattan Project.
0: Japan is still trying to figure this out, though. There's no question about it. They're, their back's against the wall. Uh, the prime minister that has brought in, Suzuki, he's actually brought in by the emperor. emperor picks him specifically and has a meeting with Suzuki, who's a former admiral, older, very older gentleman. And he basically says to him, like, look, I'm bringing you in to figure out a way to get us out of this war.
1: Yeah, negotiate peace terms. It's not a surrender. They're not, they never actually say the word surrender. It's all about peace terms, peace terms. What can we do peace terms? Because they wanted to keep really what they had. But then with that declaration saying, no, it's only unconditional surrender. They're kind of backed up to a wall, but too. And some historians debate whether whether the allies really had to do that. You could have ended the war earlier if you would have given terms.
0: Given terms,
1: But then it was also, you know, you just had had four brutal years of fighting. All the people that were killed on both sides. Like, you know, now that you're in a position where you could dictate something like that, why am I going to give you terms? Right. So it's. It's complicated.
0: So the United States, when they fight in Battle of Okinawa, which was the first time that Emperor Hirohito actually got really involved in the military tactics during World War II, supposedly. He wanted the Battle of Okinawa to be like this big battle to showcase um, what Japan is capable of. So that way it was supposed to deter... The United States from wanting to, you know, have unconditional surrender. We're supposed to do, essentially force the United States to be like, all right, let's finish this war because it was so bloody. But it had an adverse effect because it was so bloody for the Americans that the Americans were like, uh, now that we have the atomic weapon, the atomic bomb, like we can't have another Okinawa. So technically, it backfired on Hirohito, who was like, we'll show them what we're capable of, so yeah. that way they will discuss peace terms it really
1: showed them all right yeah this is what you're capable of so you know the fight is going to be that much more brutal we have to use this new weapon or you know we need to we need to give them this knockout blow now
0: the last week for japan is just one bad thing after another we dropped the atomic bomb on hiroshima and then a couple days later we drop one on nagasaki that same day that the bomb is dropped on nagasaki soviet union enters invades um invades Japanese areas in China. Interesting here too, is that's probably another podcast in itself, is that we wanted initially, uh, FDR, when you're still alive, you really wanted Stalin to enter this war and help us out. And up to really us dropping the bomb, we still kind of wanted Stalin's help with the war against Japan. But once we dropped those two bombs, we're kind of like, yeah, we don't really need you anymore. Yeah, yeah
1: we don't want that. Because we don't want him taking over land to expand his sphere of influence. It's like really, that's the beginning of the Cold War. Like exactly. we talked about it in our, in the atomic bombs podcast, that's the beginning of the cold war right there. But yeah. And, and also, we didn't even talk about like, Japan's been bombed heavily at this point yes. with fire bombs, the fire bombings of Tokyo and of like Kobe, Japan, those were worse. More people died in the Absolutely. fire bombings than the atomic bombings. Plus you had the blockade of Japan. So people were starving, right? The food wasn't yep. getting in. These naval blockade was definitely working, but it was, again, those battles like of Okinawa and the fact that there was this doctrine in japan that they were going to fight to the last man there was even some extremists that were calling for a death before honor mass suicide like let's just all kill ourselves like that yeah. sort of thing i know that wasn't going to happen to the whole population but there were individuals who felt that way and this stuff is you know the west is hearing about this and like well they're never going to give up like we're going to have to actually invade or drop these bombs and it's just not going to be easy and meanwhile here he was like no no we want to end this war but we need to have that's what are the terms? And then the only thing they're getting back from the West is unconditional no, surrender. Yeah. Those are the terms. There are no terms. You surrender, we tell you what happens. And that's not easy for a leader to, to do.
0: He finally says, you know what? I don't even care what happens to me. After the second bomb, he's like, you know what? We need to protect the people of Japan. So if I lose my life because of this, it's fine. But now it's the big six that are not willing to do that. They're like, well, we can't lose the emperor. So there is a massive division. These guys are meeting just hours right after Nagasaki, they're meeting in like a underground bunker and they're trying to discuss and look at the Potsdam declaration. They're like, what do we do? What do we do? And, They're split three and three. So the prime minister and the foreign minister, you know, they're very much like, "Ah, we got to end this war. Like, we got to just accept these terms. There's nothing we could do about it. But we do send something back to the United States stating that we need to keep our emperor. Meanwhile, the other three guys that are there, the military guys are like, "Uh, no, like we're going to fight and we're going to bring them to Japan and we're going to have one major big battle, which is going to force the United States to basically let us surrender on our terms. Uh, well, that's really what it is. Like
1: they want, they They're willing to surrender, but it has to be on their terms. And their main terms is basically we have to keep the Retained emperor it. in power. The emperor has to be kept in power. And, so, and they're just saying, no, no, no. And the emperor actually on August 15th does re- do a recording. Right. That's what we talked yes, about but before. before
0: he does the recording. So he he's for the emperor's brought into a meeting inside their bunker where the big six are meeting. Yeah. And he's brought in because if the big six, if there is a three to three vote in a big six, you have to have a, a breaking vote. So the emperor is brought into that room and he's basically like listening to all these people saying, like, why would they should or shouldn't surrender? And finally, he's the one that breaks the stalemate. And he's like, no. I want this war to end. I want it to end right now. I don't care about the terms. I I understand what you guys are saying, but like we need to end the war. Yeah. Just just end it. So he breaks the stalemate, and finally, these people are like, "All right." A response is sent over back to the United States. This is all happening after the two bombs are dropped. Yeah, this was- is on August
1: twelfth. Yeah.
0: Yep. The response is sent August eleventh. I think response was wind up being sent, and then. The United States gets this response, and they're like, mm, "We said unconditional, and these guys are saying they're willing to surrender if they keep the emperor." So, because that's ultimately what was sent over anyway, even though the emperor's like, "I don't care about me." The United States' response is, "Okay, we will let you keep the emperor, but according to how we want you to keep him, yeah, we won't kill
1: him. But we're not guaranteeing that he's still going to be powered at the uh, the Japanese hierarchy. We're not guaranteeing exactly. that."
0: And then after that, again, Japan's like, what do we do? Meanwhile, Hirohito even meets with his family members, like his brothers and everything. He's like, no, no, like I'm done. Like I want to be done. He's going against his military for the first time, really, in the entire war. Yeah, and there are some people that don't
1: like that. That's the whole point.
0: Hirohito winds up, as you said earlier, he winds up recording a message to the people that is on a record that is to be played on a radio on the 15th. But the night before that, you have a coup that is organized by... Essentially, a bunch of young officers, military officers, that feel that their generals of the Big Six have failed them in securing Japan's, you know, um, victory, honor, victory yeah. with honor. They're going to take over the palace. They're going to. They don't call it hold uh, Hirohito hostage. They're more like they're more like we're going to protect Hirohito from the bad influence around yeah. him. And, so, they, and, they, and they want that
1: recording because if he did record. Exactly, a, a message surrender. to the people. Yeah, we'll, well, we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah, because he never actually uses the word surrender. It is a surrender, but never yeah. uses the word surrender. And they know it's going to go out the next the next morning, so they're trying to find it and seize it, so yeah. and stop it from going out, which they can't find.
0: Yeah, so the whole night of the from the 14th to the 15th, you literally have these young officers are shooting people. They take over the imperial palace. They're House, looking. Yeah. They're looking for this recording for this record. They can't find it. And eventually, some other military people get window of this, and they're like, "All right, we, we can't we can't have this."
1: So we have to stop it. Yeah,
0: they stop it. They stop it in morning hours. And Hirohito actually had no idea that there was a coup until like
1: the morning. Like yeah, he, so, he yeah, was that, sleeping. That, yeah, they didn't know it was actually what was going on. Yeah, the radio message comes out. It's kind of interesting because they said that even though it came out to the Japanese people, a lot of the Japanese people couldn't really understand it. Because he used this, like more of like a aristocrat, right? Form of yep. language that really was only only well educated or like more traditional samurai. So I guess it would kind of be similar to like if you read like Shakespeare today. Exactly. you, know, like, you can you know the words, but it's like what are they really saying here? But some of the things he says is that you know the enemy has employed a new and most cruel bomb. But the main thing is he never says surrender. He just says that the war situation has not developed necessarily to Japan's advantage, and that yep. we we no longer have to endure the unendurable. So he doesn't says surrender. He just says the war is now coming to an end, and this is big. But this is the first time the commoners ever heard the emperor's voice. Remember, this guy's like God on earth, and they never heard his. They don't. They see pictures of him. You know, they probably have pictures of him in their house, but never heard him speak until this moment. All right, and he's giving this speech, saying, "All right, the war is now." coming to an end.
0: He gives a separate, much shorter speech two days later that people don't really, it's kind of like a footnote, people don't really know about. And that one's given directly to the Japanese military. And that one does say like, we need to comply with the intention and will of the United States, Britain and Soviet Union. Like it kind of basically says it's over.
1: So the war is going to be over now, but like there was still like, what are we going to do with Hirohito? Like, are we going to put him on war trials? What's going to go on here? And there was a lot of pressure from allied countries like Australia. Listed oh yeah, they a,
0: wanted. Yeah, they yeah. wanted him
1: dead. They listed him as a war criminal. They wanted to put him on trial. And it was really probably Douglas MacArthur who actually threatens to kill Hirohito to the Japanese the day of the surrender. Mm-hmm. I know we talked about that. Like he said, you know, if you there's still like debate, but a lot of people or the Japanese said they're going to surrender, but are they going to surrender? Remember, they were having peace negotiations with us in '41. They bombed us at Pearl Harbor. So, yep. MacArthur actually says to some of these Japanese diplomats, like, if you pull anything, you know, when we're signing this paper, these uh, accords on the, on the Missouri, I'm gonna slit the emperor's throat right in front of you. That's what he says to them, and they're like, nice. Oh, cool.
0: But then you have Douglas MacArthur who really saves his life because was he, yeah, like, he, he totally killed me now, he's saving his life. It's still kind of exactly like, yeah. like if Hirohito was so involved, how would he avoid prosecution for war crimes? Well, largely because of Douglas MacArthur, right? Douglas MacArthur was appointed the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers um, in September in 1945. Pacific. He was the main leader in the occupied Japan. So his job, MacArthur's job, was to help stabilize the country. And one of his first actions was whether Hirohito should be tried as war criminal. And the arguments were on both sides, but he decided not to charge and try Hirohito because he thought that Japan would be ungovernable if if they did that like he wanted a peaceful,
1: he wanted a peaceful transition he didn't want all these like you know extremist elements bombing things and doing assassinations right going after the troops he didn't want that and they knew if he had the emperor at least there as a figurehead if nothing else right yeah. telling the people no we're going to go along with this like this is what we're is for the good of Japan that it could quell some of that and it really worked like if you want to look at like the best possible post-war occupation you know yeah. the post-war occupation of Japan was On the X's and O's standpoint, it worked.
0: I mean, again, we're occupying a nation, which sucks.
1: Yeah, yeah. To achieve post-war, if you wanted the American post-war objectives in Japan, it it happened, okay? I know other things going on here. That's a simplification. But it was successful. And one reason was you can give credit to MacArthur for having Hirohito by his side during this time
0: doing yep. this. It gave some credibility to what the Americans were doing. Yes. So without Hirohito on trial, there was really not much division in Japan. And in addition, it was in best interest of the US for Japan to be transformed into a democratic stronghold against communism in a region, right? Because you were encircled by communism in countries like China and Soviet Union. So all of a sudden, like you want Japan to become a democracy. And then a few years later, when you have the Korean War, Japan's entire economy is reworked for war production to create jeeps arms uh food anything you can think of for the korean war which does to japan what world war ii did to the united states it blows up their economy and it brings about a lot of wealth to japan well they 19- become they
1: become westernized but yeah but there's still a lot of debate like a lot of the um papers that were or anything that showed that the, the emperor or his family committed war crimes that was kind of destroyed or hidden right oh yeah
0: yeah there were american officials were like rebranding yeah. hirohito as this like yeah. peaceful democratic figure yeah, he, oh he had
1: no he had no power i remember you hear that in school too like when i was in high school middle school when they talked about it oh the emperor didn't really have that much power and stuff like that it's even debated but most historians say now he had a lot more power than probably what the history books originally said, right? Maybe you go back 20, 30 years. So he was definitely coping for the war. He was definitely reflecting on his wartime role. I like hear, he you know, he never really answered questions directly, which angers the, a lot of Chinese, even to this day, right? Was his power limited by cabinet members and stuff like that? Yeah, but... He he definitely knew. He definitely helped plan things that we talked about uh, before, and definitely members of his family were directly responsible for a lot of atrocities, particularly uh, against China during the Second World War.
0: So, uh, from forty-five to fifty-one, Hirohito basically tours the country, oversees reconstruction efforts. He's like a, like a figurehead. He's not really. Yeah, he doesn't figured, really have power. Yeah, he, doesn't, he
1: doesn't have power, but he does. He doesn't have. He doesn't have governmental power, right? But he yeah. does have power with the people because he his words carry weight.
0: When you look at it, when he finally passed away, a lot of different world leaders went to the funeral and people were like at the time 89 they're like should we go to funeral i mean japan did so many terrible things during the war and you know hirohito kind of knew about all those things like how much of that was done because of his orders so i remember that there was a lot of commotion who should go to this funeral and if they go should they bow to his casket and a lot of world leaders did not so I think that pretty much covers our uh, our short little foray into Hirohito and the fall of Japan. If you guys are interested in learning more about this, there's tons of books that you could obviously read. Uh, there's one called Japan's Longest Day, which literally kind of talks about the last day and the coup that is going on. There's also Fall of Japan, another great book that was written in the 50s that deals with pretty much this entire time period Regardless, thank you so much for uh, tuning in once more. We do appreciate it. If you guys need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you guys have any questions, suggestions, please feel free to email us. Thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next week.
1: Stay safe, everybody.
0: I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at
3: historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad,